Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Well, good morning, Maple Leafs fans. Welcome to the second round of the playoffs, also known as the place my Carolina Hurricanes visit every year. Just a few more wins and we meet each other. During a lecture in seminary on 1 Corinthians 15, we were all amazed at the lecturer's wisdom and brilliance, except one listener. As soon as the lecture was done, his hand shot in the air. Now, you know that guy. You've probably been that guy. Anyway, he said, you skipped over verse 29, the one about baptizing dead people. And so the lecturer started some fancy dancing. Well... I guess in ancient Corinth, some were so excited about Jesus, they were worried about their loved ones who had died and never heard about him. So they may have been practicing vicarious baptism on behalf of the dead. Questioner wasn't satisfied. So are you saying there's nothing in the Bible to say we can't baptize dead people? It reminds of that scene from Monty Python's Holy Grail. Bring out your dead. Let's have a baptism. Vicarious baptism on behalf of the dead is practiced in the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. If you join the Mormons, they won't just baptize you, they'll baptize all your ancestors that they can find out about. And the idea is rooted in their notion of family. In Mormonism, family is eternal. In Christian circles, when we get married, we say it's till death do us part. Christ says there is no marriage in the kingdom. But in Mormonism, marriage is eternal. And so they have to go back and sanctify all the marriages that made you, you, or else the family won't be together in eternity. I admire the consistency. Here's the fruit for some of us. Some of the best ancestry websites on the internet are run by Mormons. So because of their distinctive belief, you and I can find out about our great-great-grandmother or whatever. I love that. Their church's weirdness creates a gift for the world. You've probably seen TV shows where celebrities learn about their ancestry and so learn something about themselves. Maybe you've spit into a cup yourself and mailed it off to learn something. My friend from Trinidad in the Caribbean was curious what part of Africa her ancestors came from, so she mailed off the thing it came back and it said, congratulations, you are mostly German. <laughs> Folks hunting down their lineage are actually asking a bigger question. Who am I, really? And that's a question DNA alone can't answer. Who are we, really? We're the ones Jesus Christ is saving. That's the deepest truth about ourselves. Now, that doesn't help your fifth grader fill out her family tree for her homework assignment, but it's still true. A friend of mine was adopted as a refugee infant when South Vietnam was disintegrating. So her whole life, whenever a doctor asks, was there cancer in your family, she has to say, I have no idea. All I know is the Catholic Church brought me from Vietnam to North America, and that's why I'm alive. 
And don't you know she's the most loyal Catholic on planet Earth? Our church is in a series on strange texts in the Bible. We've been in Exodus all year until now. And wouldn't you know, I got the best observation on the book of Exodus I've ever heard last week after our series was over. So I can't not pass it on to you. As they say in the black church, God doesn't always come when you want, but is always on time. So here it is. I got this from John Bell, Scottish preacher. The Hebrew midwives risk their lives to see that Moses gets born safely. Then Moses becomes midwife for all of Israel. He delivers Israel through deadly water to new life in the promised land. The midwives deliver Moses so that Moses can midwife Israel. Isn't that good? I wish I had that four months ago, but here we are. This 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians comes up all the time in church, especially around Easter season, but we always skip the 29th verse. So what gives? What do we make of it? First, a word about baptism. Baptism is a mystery through which God saves. Baptism is a mystery through which God saves. That's why every Christian church does it. That's why we make baptismal fonts look big and imposing and important. Baptism is how God midwives us to new life in Christ. My church in college built a beautiful new sanctuary, built this huge baptismal font out of glass, front and center. And we all came for the first Sunday of worship, and someone noticed there was a burn mark on the carpet. Apparently, the light coming through the new windows had been prismed in the baptismal water and lit a fire right beneath the font. Baptism is dangerous, even though it's also beautiful. But of course, like everything good, baptism can be distorted. For many centuries, baptism was a kind of baby registry. If you want to learn about somebody in England, you went to their parish church and you looked up their baptismal record. It's a kind of city hall. So baptism became a baby ritual, sometimes called christening, but that's the same thing. Now, the Christians called Baptists rebelled against this around 500 years ago, and they said, no, 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 no. Baptism is a sign of being born all over again. You have to profess faith in Jesus to do that. So infants shouldn't be baptized. And while I disagree with that view, I respect it. For the whole church, the entire church of Jesus Christ, baptism is a sign that you're part of Jesus' people. In the New Testament, whole households are baptized. So that would include infants. That would include those who are cognitively impaired and can't profess faith for themselves. That would include people other than those who can ask for it. Baptism is the door to salvation. You either walk through it yourself or someone carries you through it. Now, there are exceptions, of course. There are always exceptions. Jesus on his cross is flanked by two thieves. One curses him. The other asks for salvation. No time for baptism. So the church has always said in rare instances of martyrdom, that person is baptized 
in their own blood. Now that's serious. I'll take the water. Thanks very much. Rare exceptions aside, the church figured one needs to be baptized to spend eternity with God. And so that's why if a newborn was ill, a priest would be sent for to baptize right away. The medieval Catholic church even came up with a new category, limbo, for those who weren't baptized and died as infants, because they couldn't bring themselves to say that unbaptized infants went to hell. So normally, if you were unbaptized, you went straight to the place with the people with the pointy sticks. If you were baptized, you went to purgatory. That's most of us. Very rarely, someone would be holy enough, a saint, to go right to heaven. But unbaptized infants who die are in limbo, kind of like a waiting room, not too much to do, but not unpleasant. A recent pope said there's no such thing as limbo, so don't worry, babies, we'll be fine. Now, all of this rigmarole is sort of like us human beings, sinners, to take a gift and turn it into a quiz. How old were you? How much water did they use? How much did you believe? Did you do it right? Did you not do it right? You have to do it over again. No. Baptism joins us to Jesus Christ. It happens with water, like our first birth is through water. It happens in the name of the Trinity, like everything else that matters. After that, don't worry about it over much. In ways we don't understand. God is using this mystery to save us and all creation. Baptism is not a test, it's a gift. St. Paul gives us some rationale for this gift in the reading that you heard. Now, careful reading Paul, C.S. Lewis says somewhere that it's a shame that the Lord who gave St. Paul so many gifts neglected to give him the gift of clarity. When you read the book of James, you can understand it. Love the poor. Don't gossip. Don't be a jerk. We don't do it because it's hard, but we can understand it. When you read Paul, you say, what? Run that by me again. We preachers might do a series on Paul in the fall, just so you can look forward to the not understanding. In this text, you see Paul in his greatness. He has heard the church in Corinth is struggling to believe in the resurrection of the body. And he is apoplectic. Without the resurrection of the body, there is no hope at all. We Christians don't just believe in souls going to heaven. We believe God will raise us in our body just like God raised Jesus. Some of Paul's arguments, they come fast, so here they are. One, Christ is the first fruits. Now, most of us don't grow up in agricultural settings anymore, and neither did I, so I'll do my best. First fruits. When a new crop comes in, and you haven't tasted a raspberry since last year, it's the thing you most want to taste in the world. You're not allowed to. You take that to the temple as an offering to God, and a sign that the whole crop belongs to God. Because everything belongs to God. Now, don't worry. The first fruits are a sign that so many more raspberries are coming. You will get sick and tired of raspberries. They will be coming out of your ears. You'll be giving them away to strangers. But the first fruits that you want the most isn't yours. Paul says Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. 
So much more resurrection is coming. You won't even believe it when it comes. Second argument. Paul continues. As all die in Adam, all will be made alive in Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is Adam done right this time. Just like our ancestor Adam made all of humanity fall, Jesus, Adam done right this time, makes all of humanity come alive. Third argument, they come quick. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is unnatural. It's an intruder. It shouldn't be there. And one day, it won't be there when Christ annihilates it in full. This is great bracing stuff. This is Paul at his best. And then Paul throws in, oh, by the way, yeah, so that's why y'all baptize dead people. If Christ weren't raised, you shouldn't be baptizing dead people. Uh, Paul, that don't make no sense. Explain yourself. Now, Paul doesn't approve of the practice, but he doesn't disapprove of it either. He just mentions it and moves on. We know about this practice of baptizing people on behalf of the dead nowhere else in the early church. Just this one verse in Paul. And that brings up a key rule for interpreting the Bible. When the Bible is unclear, you interpret it in light of the more clear passages. You're not allowed to build a whole system or practice just on one strange, isolated verse here or there. It's clear in the New Testament, baptism requires three things. Water, the name of the Trinity, and confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they can come in strange order. So when we baptize infants in here, we got water, we got the Trinity, but their confession of faith comes later. That's why we have confirmation in our church. Please sign your teenagers up for confirmation starting May 7th. Did you like that? You're welcome. All right. <laughs> Baptism is the start of life and faith. It's not the completion. Sometimes you might not have water, as in the case of martyrdom. You have profession of faith and you have the Trinity. So we need all three, water, Trinity, faith. But they can come in strange order at different times. And here's a little secret. Lots of pastors have baptized someone dead. I never have, but lots of my friends have. And you can imagine why. You get to the hospital room, and the person has already died, and the one who's left behind is bereft because they're afraid they're in hell. This is not the time for a Sunday school lesson or a sermon. So you go to the hallway, you get a little water, you come back, you anoint that blessed forehead, and you leave the person reassured. There are no rules allowing us to do this. We just do it. Because we want to show that no one is beyond Christ's grace. If Easter means anything, it's that His grace pushes beyond the grave and destroys it. One of y'all in my Tuesday Bible study told me this story of a child born preterm in a botched abortion. The child wasn't going to make it. And so a nurse, one of her colleagues, slipped out, lit a candle beside the child, baptized him, and then sat with him until he died. 
It was the right and dignified thing to do. Now, don't tell me she wasn't a priest in that moment. Christ's mercy reaches past what's understandable, past what seems normal to us, past the bonds of life and death, because he's eager to save all of us. I've told some of you before that I was baptized twice as an infant, and that's hard to do. My grandmother was an everyday mass Catholic. She was sure my hippie parents wouldn't have me baptized. So she was babysitting me. She tucked me under her arm like a football, took me into the kitchen, and baptized me herself in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the, baptiz- the emergency was averted. Now later, my parents inexplicably dragged me over to the Methodist church and had me baptized. And she was too nervous to say she had done anything. So it went ahead twice. This double infant baptism may explain some of my theological schizophrenia. Don't blame me. It's their fault. Now, in seriousness, I love that I was baptized as an infant because it's always seemed like God was pursuing me rather than the reverse. Before I knew my own name, I was a Christian. I might be a bad Christian or a lapsed one or not doing very much about it but I was his, and nothing could undo that, and that's good news. I mean, we didn't let our kids choose their favorite sports teams. We put them in the right gear when they were infants. We didn't let them choose their political parties. Why would we let them choose whether to be a Christian or not? (laughs) That's way more important than those things. Annie Dillard tells a story of marching into her pastor's office as a teenager and telling him she was through with Christianity. It was too stupid to bother with. I want to watch you take my name off the roll. Okay. He crossed her off. And as she marched back out of his office, he called after her, you'll be back, Annie. (laughs) What? How dare you? And he said, look, Annie, I'm sorry, but I baptized you. Christ has this way of finding lost sheep. It's just what happens. Annie Dillard became one of the great spiritual and ecological writers of her time. Now, that's all an individualistic way of viewing baptism. Here's a more communal way. I had a friend whose grandfather fought for Chiang Kai-shek against communists in China. Now, that's a dramatic way to start a story. I should tell that story more often. He was also a lay preacher. And so before they went into battle, he would take a fire hose and douse all his soldiers and baptize them because he figured they were in his care And that wasn't just for now, that was for eternity. This might not be the most theologically responsible way to practice baptism. But it does tell you something. That Christ longs to save all of us. And is especially near when we're afraid. There are lots of stories in the early and medieval church of emperors baptizing all their troops. But those soldiers keeping their sword arm with their sword drawn outside the water. Most of me is baptized, but my fighting arm, that still belongs to the devil. Now, it's silly in one way, but in another way, it shows a truth that the parts of us that go under the water should be altogether Jesus's. They could see that. But those soldier examples err on the side of baptism as a communal event. It doesn't matter who you are 
or what you believe, we're all going through the Red Sea together. Lots of my friends have been baptized as adults, hence the name, Baptist. Even if they were baptized or christened as infants, they say that didn't count, so this one's the first real one. So technically, they weren't baptized twice. And lots of them have moving stories about those experiences. I went down under the water, and I couldn't believe how cold it was. I came up sputtering like a newborn on the day of birth. It felt like a bath, like I got clean under there. I'm jealous of those experiences. At my old church in Boone, it was in Appalachia where you go down by the river to pray. So we would do baptisms for our confirmands at the river. And those who'd never been baptized, we immersed them entirely. Those who had been baptized as infants, they waded into the water. I splashed them wet, reminded them of their baptism like we did up here in January at TEMC. But I started to get the most interesting questions from parents who would say, those river baptisms are cool. Shouldn't we not bring our infants for baptism because we want them to get baptized the cool way at the river when they're 13? Strange sort of success. Now, since Baptists don't baptize infants, they got to do something. So they usually have baby dedications. This seems like cheating to me, but they didn't ask me. But a Baptist minister friend of mine says he's always tempted to sneak a little water up there to go ahead and make an honest Christian... (laughs) out of these babies he's dedicating. When I took a group of parishioners to the Jordan River, I told them, look, look, I'm not baptizing any of you. You've all been baptized before. This is a chance to remember our baptism. Don't ask me to re-baptize. We don't do it. God never gets it wrong the first time. So we get there, we pray, we splash around, we sing a hymn. And then a Nigerian church group pulled up, got off the bus, They're in brilliant robes, and they're going in the Jordan River down for baptism one by one. And one of my parishioners looks at me with this guilty look in her eye, and she says, hey, um, I'm sorry, I'm going with them. (laughs) I mean, I sort of admire her chutzpah, right? Sure, preacher, you told me not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? Who was I to stop her? I mean, she'd come a long way. Let me shift continents and centuries. In the early 20th century in Britain, moral philosophy had disintegrated badly. Philosophers were arguing there was no such thing as morality, properly speaking. All there was was what you want and what I want and the power struggle between us. There was no reference to anything greater. Moral anarchy. People don't really say that sort of thing after the Holocaust, I don't think. But one philosopher realized that the whole thing was untrue. Some ways of speaking don't say, I prefer this, you prefer this. Some ways of speaking change reality. So when a judge bangs a gavel and declares you innocent, you're innocent. That's a state of affairs that's been changed. Or when a pastor says, by the power invested in me, I declare that you're married, it is so. That's a new reality in the universe. So some speech doesn't just arbitrate desire. Some speech changes reality. When someone says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're different. I can't explain how. 
No one can fully, but it is so. And isn't it interesting, no one really argues now that there is no morality. We fight so hard over it because we all assume there is. Now, here's maybe the most amazing thing about baptism. Jesus sought it. He submitted to it. The first one to go underwater in need of salvation is the Savior himself. Now, this is more than a little awkward. If baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, what's he need the water for? In one gospel, Jesus has to argue John the Baptist into it. John says, no, 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 I'm not doing this. And Jesus says, shut up, I'm in charge here. It's my translation, it's a little loose, I grant. When we go under the water, we meet Jesus there, who raises us to resurrection life. That's true at whatever age, whatever cognitive ability, whether we're alive or dead, an infant or a soldier or an inch past death or an inch before it or whatever. A wise person said, every human being you see, that's someone whose company Jesus longs for. That's someone whose company Jesus longs for. Baptism shows that. No wonder some want to do it a second time, but you shouldn't. God always gets it right the first time. So you see some things from this strange text. Baptism's important, but it's messy too. It always has been. There's been uncertainty about it ever since we started this Christian business. But it's good. So good that it spills over the bounds that we make for it. So good that it goes to people we're tempted to say shouldn't have it, can't have it. Infants, dead people, non-responsive people, the wrong sort of people, the right sort of people, if there are such people. Jesus is after all of us, and he will go through hell itself just to get us. Amen.